Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the first national third quarter 2020 analyst call. At this time, all participants are in listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session. Instructions will be given at that time on how to queue for a question. This call is being recorded for replay purposes on October 28, 2020 at 10 a.m. Eastern Time. It is now my pleasure to turn the call over to Stephen Smith, Chairman and Chief Executive Officer of First National. Please proceed, Mr. Smith. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to our call and thank you for participating. Rob Ingalls, our Chief Financial Officer, and Maury Taz, Executive Vice President, are also on the line. I remind you that our remarks and answers may contain forward-looking information about future events or the company's future performance. This information is subject to risk and uncertainties and should be considered in conjunction with the risk factors detailed in our MD&A. As you saw from our earnings release uh, last night, Q3 was a record quarter for First National. Growth and volumes produced strong growth in our profitability metrics. To be precise, Q3 2020 pre-fair market value income was ahead of Q3 2019 by 25%. If you recall, Q3 2019 at that time was also a record quarter, ahead of 2018 by 28%. As a result of the strong earnings over the past year, First National has generated capital in excess of what the company needs for our growth objectives. Accordingly, our board of directors announced a special dividend of 50 cents per share payable on December 15, 2020, to shareholders of record at the end of November. In addition, with some clarity now for our 2020 fiscal year, the board also increased the regular monthly dividend with the dividend payable on December 15. The annual dividend rate will increase from $1.95 per share to $2.10 per share. We strive for consistency and sustainability in our performance, and I'm pleased to say our non-bank business model has delivered both over many years. In fact, this is the fourth consecutive quarter, uh, I'm sorry, the fourth consecutive year the board has authorized a special dividend, and the 13th time since our 2006 IPO that our dividend uh, or distribution has increased. The most recent increase moves our annualized dividend rate by almost uh, 8% year over year. For those long-time shareholders who have stayed with us, inclusive of the payments we will make next month and in December, First National will pay the cumulative total of $25.80 in dividends or distributions per share since our IPO at $10 per share in 2006. We're proud of this track record and determined to build on it in future years. Turning to the highlights of Q3, MUA surpassed $117 billion as a result of 8% annualized growth in the quarter itself and growth of 6% annualized since 
September 2016. As MEOA is a significant driver of earnings, this growth is important. Looking at contributors, the contributors, both segments, residential and commercial, achieved very strong growth in new production and made the most of mortgage renewal opportunities. Single-family mortgage originations were 42%, or $1.7 billion higher than a year ago. All our regional offices achieved double-digit year-over-year production growth. The growth leaders were Quebec and British Columbia with increases of 69% and 61% respectively over last year. We believe this growth Ladies and gentlemen, I would please. suggest the Canadians are much more inclined to favor physically distanced, technology-enabled solutions today as they search for a mortgage. And this is exactly what First National and our partners have always offered. Unlike the branch operations of the banks, which have been disrupted by the pandemic, our Merlin underwriting system has continued to operate without fail to assist Canadians through the mortgage broker partners in getting the best combination of service, choice, and value. Not to be ignored, of course, is the fact that home purchasing activity across the country was remarkably stronger in the quarter. Supported by low interest rates, it became easier for home buyers to qualify for a mortgage. I think it's reasonable to say we were all surprised by the strength of the market given the pandemic conditions. While we knew from commitment activity in May and June that Q3 would be good, it exceeded our expectations. Through the first nine months of 2020, total single-family production, including renewals, amounted to $18.2 billion, $4.2 billion or 30% above last year. For the quarter, single-family renewals were ahead of last year by about 14%. On the commercial side, new mortgage originations were $1.7 billion, $256 million or about 18% above last year. Unlike in Q2, we saw growth both in insured and conventional mortgage production. As you may recall, we saw some investors in conventional mortgages pause their activities early this year to assess risk which caused us to focus more heavily on CMHC insured programs. Now some of these investors are returning. First National's ability to expertly fund a variety of different commercial mortgage types is a clear advantage that I believe our customers appreciate. While market share is difficult to calculate in commercial, I have to believe we have captured more of the market as we maintained our strong presence while uh, some of our competitors step back. Once again, the vast majority of our commercial fundings were on multi-unit residential properties, which continued to perform well for owners and developers. As much as technology is a driver of first national success, the most important ingredient is our people. Up and down the line in both single family and commercial. Our team has adjusted very well to working from home, and over these past seven months, 
has maintained a good level of efficiency and productivity. We are asking them to continue their fine efforts from home to protect everyone's health and safety. I'll now ask Rob to provide details on quarterly financial performance before Maury comments on our outlook. Uh, thanks, Stephen, and good morning, everyone. We're very pleased with third quarter performance. Even in a period without a pandemic, these results would be considered very strong. Looking first at revenue, increased 3% over last year, or 4%, if we exclude the impact of changes in fair market value gains and losses related to interest rate movements between the quarters. Revenue growth was driven by higher placement fees. Placement fees increased 41%, or almost $29 million, compared to Q3 of last year, reflecting in large part the 48% growth in mortgage volume with institutional investors. Now, looking deeper, placement volume in our commercial segment grew by 16%, but because mortgage spreads were twice what they were last year, placement fees in this segment increased by 133%. There will come a time when mortgage spreads will normalize, but with continued uncertainty in the economy, these spreads seem to be lingering, at least so far in the fourth quarter. This growth was partially offset by a decrease in placements of renewed mortgages as the company chose to securitize these instead. Mortgage servicing income also increased in the quarter by 5% over last year. This reflected growth in revenue earned in the company's underwriting and fulfillment processing services business as our third-party customers are also growing their market share and benefiting from the advantages provided by Merlin. The growth was more than enough to offset decreases related to lower administration fees, particularly for mortgages on deferred payment plans and lower interest rates on escrow deposits. Growth was also registered in deferred placement fee revenue, which was ahead of last year by about $9 million. This reflected higher product originated for these programs but the bigger driver were wider spreads on the mortgages. Not all sources of revenue grew. Net interest revenue earned on securitized mortgages decreased by 3% or about $1 million, largely due to the indirect consequences of the pandemic on securitization spreads and the cost of indemnities payable to NHA MBS debt holders when mortgages prepaid prior to their scheduled maturity dates. These indemnities are calculated to make whole NHA MBS debt holders who are assumed to reinvest the prepayment principal at risk-free reinvestment rates. As was the case in Q2, the cost of indemnity rose as a result of a decrease in the interest rates in March. This is reflected in a $3.4 million increase in securitized mortgage interest expense year-over-year. Growth in the Excalibur securitization program offset some of this negative variance and did growth in securitized commercial segment mortgages. Another effect of the lower interest rate environment was lower mortgage investment income, which decreased 31% year over year as mortgage rates earned in the warehouse period were lower than in 2019. Turning now to mortgage deferrals, and as you know, First National provided quali qualifying borrowers with a three-month deferral uh, payment to help them through the abrupt impact of the pandemic this past spring. By mid-May, the company had approved mortgage payment deferrals for 13.9% of eligible single-family MUA. By mid-July, this number had fallen to 4.2%, and as of October the 23rd, had been reduced to 0.7%. 
While the majority of these borrowers have resumed making payments, the company estimates that 1% of the borrowers that took part in the deferral uh, payment program will have some form of delinquency issues going forward. Deferred mortgages are not classified as delinquent or in arrears and will not be reported to mortgage default insurers or credit bureaus. First National's exposure is generally not to credit losses, but to the funding related to the mortgages that are insured. From an accounting perspective, deferred mortgages cease to amortize and interest otherwise payable will be capitalized to the principal of the mortgage, such that mortgage balances will increase during this period. However, when these mortgages are securitized, the related debt cannot be increased in step with the mortgage, but in fact must be repaid according to amortization. This is most significant for the company's NHA MBS program. As the issuer, First National is required to make timely payments on the NHA MBS securities it has issued. The company must use its own resources to fund the increased mortgage balance, as well as to fund the paydown of the securitized debt. At June 30th, 2020, this obligation required investment by the company of $39 million, compared to about $5 million at the end of March. By September 30th, this investment was $65 million. Now moving to profitability metrics, pre-fair market value income increased by 25% compared to last year as growth in the revenue flowed to the bottom line. Net income per share increased 20%. Strong profitability meant that the after-tax uh, dividend payout ratio against pre-fair market value income was just 40%. All things considered, we believe there is Good support, latest dividend increase the board announced commencing with the December 2020 payment. As a final observation, despite the investment in growing its market share and providing financial assistance to its borrowers, the company still managed to earn over 50% return on equity on normalized income in the quarter. And now here's Maury with our outlook. Good morning, everyone. Well, I would like to add my thanks to First National's employees for their performance under these challenging circumstances. It's one thing to adjust to working from home and another to address at the same time the demands that are created by such a significant increase in volumes. Hard work, dedication, and great support from our IT team has made a world of difference. We've continued to hire this year to address the growth in our business, and our amazing team now numbers over 1,100 employees. It's certainly more difficult to hire in these times and this speaks to the effort of our HR team. Now turning to our outlook, I am aware that the Bank of Canada has made a rate announcement this morning as we started our call, and we will be interested in their assessment of the current state of the economy. I think it's safe to say that Canada still faces much economic uncertainty, and with COVID-19 still present, and in some reasons on the rise, it's difficult to look too far forward. That said, we feel very positive about the fourth quarter. Based on what we saw in Q3, we expect substantially higher seasonal residential originations to continue, as well as ongoing commercial segment success with growing originations. Should this prove to be the case, we expect a good finish to the year and extending into the 2021 in a positive fashion as well. Conditions, of course, are quite dynamic. Some of our competitors in the commercial stepped back earlier this year, and we're now seeing more of them returning. However, wide spreads are still persisting. On the funding side, there continues to be strong demand for product from our institutional investors and as a result of substantial amount of liquidity in the financial system. Compared to the early days of the lockdown, securitization markets normalized in Q2, 
and continue that way into Q3. In some respects, we think that the current situation parallels the experience we had coming out of the 2008 credit crisis. Now as then, we are benefiting from wider mortgage coupons relative to funding costs on new originations. If the wider spreads persist, the company will continue to benefit. Overall, I believe that our long-standing approach to doing business through Merlin is right for the times, and our results to date would certainly support this assertion. The ability to get business done virtually resonates with our partners and borrowers now more than ever. We suspect that one of the reasons our single-family team experienced such substantial growth in Q3 is the disruption that COVID-19 created for traditional bank origination channels. To conclude, I would just remind you that it's far from business as usual, even though First National performed well. As much as we might like to, it's simply not possible for us to reliably estimate the length and severity of COVID-19 related developments or their impact on the financial results and conditions of the company in future periods. What we can say with confidence is that we continue to enjoy strong relationships with the mortgage brokers and diverse funding sources that set our company apart. As a result of our long-term progress, First National will continue to generate income and cash flow from its $34 billion portfolio of mortgages pledged under securitization and $81 billion servicing portfolio and focus as always on the value inherent in our significant single family renewal book. That concludes our prepared remarks. Now we will be pleased to take your questions. Operator, please open the line for questions. At this time, I would like to remind everyone that if you would like to ask a question, to press star 1 on your telephone keypad now. Again, that's star 1 for any questions over the phone line. We'll pause for just a moment to compile the Q&A roster. And your first question will come from Jeff Kwan with RBC Capital Markets. Please go ahead. Hi, good morning. Um, my first morning. question was just uh, you know, talking about the positive outlook that you guys have for Q4 and the start of 2021. Um, specifically on the residential side, um, do you have any thoughts on on the year-over-year -year growth uh, that you had in originations in Q3, whether or not you think you can kind of hold the line there for Q4, um, or or is it more of a comment that you expect it and it sounds like it should be up significantly, but maybe not quite as strong as what you saw in Q3 on the residential side? Well, you know, Jeff, I guess I, I don't think we have precise numbers. I think we Q, I think Q4 would be strong. Q3 uh, October commitments are strong compared to last year, and they've con continued the trend of the rest of 2020. So we think it's going to be strong, but uh, we don't have, we we typically don't give forecasts on growth. I guess maybe do you feel like it's strong, but because of either just seasonality or whether or not some of the pent-up demand or this um, surge that we've seen, I guess, for people that are wanting to live in bigger uh, places, um, has that uh, kind of the acceleration, has that started to so, show some signs of slowing or is it still remaining at the same um, Well, um, I, I would say, if I had a sense, I'd say in the last, Day or two, I just mean yesterday and today, we've probably seen a little bit of, uh, of moderation that uh, we would just attribute to the fact we're getting into November. We're getting into November, December, so you, you tend to get start to get a little bit of slowdown. But I think all the factors that contributed to the strength of the market in uh, Q3 
uh, three at the end of Q2 and Q3 are still still around, which is uh, low interest rates, uh, demand for housing. Um, the I think a, a factor that uh, home buyers to have not extend uh, been affected to the uh, by the pandemic uh, to the same extent of uh, renters. So there's a bit of a bifurcation in the market, but. Uh, the factors that are contributing to uh, strength in Q3, we see continuing into Q4, and, and I think on balance, we probably see them continuing into uh, uh, 2021. And I think, Jeff, on the commercial side, we did see a severe slowdown in the processing of applications uh, in the last quarter from CMAC, just because of the number of them and uh, shortage of staff at CMAC. Um, they're starting to catch up now, so applications have already been submitted in the third quarter. We should see sort of a rapid pickup in the processing and funding of those into the fourth and uh, first quarter. Okay, perfect. And just my other question was, um, do you have a view on how much market share you think the, the mortgage brokers channel as a whole has has increased during the pandemic, and then also specifically within the mortgage broker channel? Uh, how your market share has changed um, again since the pandemic started? Um, we do not have uh, we do not have any numbers on how much the mortgage broker market has increased relative to the overall market. I think those numbers will come out in time. We might might get some visibility on that maybe at the end of the year or when the banks do their Q. Q3 numbers, um, but we don't. Oh, I guess for them it'll be the Q4 numbers. Um, so we might get some visibility there. Um, our share has been strong. Um, I know we were number two at the end of Q2. There's that report. I'm sure you see the Finasta report, which shows mm -hmm. mortgage brokers' closings. Uh, I think that's a, a pretty good indication, and I think you can see that our numbers were. We're quite strong there, but it's probably the overall, probably the overall share in the market that's been the issue. I, I think the other big factor is, I mean, we've we've had maybe two or three years of, of fairly tight spreads, so what, a big factor here is we're seeing, uh, in addition to, uh, so if you want to look at secular uh, things that have happened in 2016, about four years ago, uh, there was a stress test for insured mortgages. So that had a definite effect. And a year later, they put a stress test for commercial mortgages. So that had an effect. And what 2020 started to see, and we saw that in February and March, uh, was a big pop in mortgage demand. And so there were factors where the government was trying to, to take steps to uh, say moderate the market in 16, 17, Government Ontario, Government of BC, and then uh, I think finally the market was coming back. Uh, our commitments for March 2020, notwithstanding that the pandemic started mid-March, was the strongest uh, month for commitments for 2020, and that's pre-pandemic. So there was a, a very, very strong demand there, and I think that started to be reflected again. In, at the end of May, starting in May and June again. So I think those factors are factors are still there. 
And then the, the, the other one is that we had a period, in, I think, in 18 and 19, where um, the price setters in our market are the DCIPs, market spreads relative to uh, Government of Canada bonds, or I guess CMB and NHA MBS were quite tight, and they've been an awful lot wider this year. So we've had a that's had a big impact. And one can never predict where those are going, but they're they're maintaining the wides too. And also on the commercial side, a spread started to widen out at the end of 19. So we went into 20 with wider spreads. They widened out during the pandemic. They've come uh, pandemic the last four or five months. They started to come back in again, but they're still wide relative to 19. Okay, perfect. Thank you. And once again, if you would like to ask a question, please press star 1 on your telephone keypad now. Again, ladies and gentlemen, star 1 for any questions. We'll pause for just a moment. The next question will come from Graham Writing with TD Securities. Please go ahead. Hi, good morning. Um, morning, Graham. Just maybe, maybe just a quick question on your uh, your interest margin on the secure type side. You know, indemnity costs were a drag last quarter. I think to the tune of almost 10 million, and this quarter was about 3.4 million. So, maybe just some color on um, what's driving the lower drag. Is it just less prepayment activity, and and what is your expectation or outlook for that uh, uh, going forward? Yeah. Well, I think uh, I think what we started to do, we started to uh, we're not a big buyers of first uh, of uh, uh, one year mortgages, and I think we uh, we we started to be more aggressive in that area. So as a result, by being more aggressive in that area and putting some one year business on the books uh, in a competitive way, it tended to reduce the prepayment spreads. I think we're comfortable. We're probably. Um, going to be named, able to maintain these lower prepayment penalties or indemnity payments for the uh, for going forward. Um, so I I think uh, I think that sort of uh, caught us unawares when we first got the payments, and then we just took steps to uh, to address that. So we're we're comfortable that we're going to have lower indemnities going forward. The Q3 numbers will probably be. Uh, more indicative of what we're going to see uh, the upcoming quarters. Okay, understood. And then um, it sounds like, uh, you know, the wider spreads that you're seeing this year uh, are persisting as you move into Q4, largely. Uh, is, that, is that an accurate description? And then, you know, are the economics similar for you if you choose to fund versus, you know, institutional placements versus securitization? Uh, on the residential side, is uh, are the economics similar right now? Yeah. Well, uh, it's, it's a, this is a perennial question: the split between securitization and institutional placements. Generally, we make more money doing securitization than institutional placements. We do a securitization. Generally, we we get the entire spread, but we we take on commitment risks, we take on uh, prepayment risks, we take on indemnity payment risks. So there's a lot of risks take on, but generally we get uh, rewarded uh, for that. So we try to securitize as much as we can. Um, so, uh, and because the economics there are better. And in tight spread environments, the economics aren't a lot different. In wider spread environments, uh, uh, 
Okay. And then my last question, if I could, is just on the deferrals front. So pretty encouraging numbers in terms of the percentage of your residential book that is uh, um, still deferred and sort of down from a peak in May. Uh, your numbers seem to be a lot better than what we've seen coming from some of the, you know, the big banks and the mortgage insurance companies. So what would you attribute the, the difference to? Uh, you know, my, uh, my sense would be is I don't think our numbers are materially different than the rest of the industry. And what I would say is that the DSIBs tend to do out of the box offer a six-month six month deferral. And so they're just coming through to the end of that. So you probably haven't seen them reporting. And uh, I, again, I guess the mortgage, the only mortgage, the public mortgage insurer would be, I guess that would be the Genworth numbers coming through. Um, they would be, they would tend to reflect the big banks because that would be more more their customer. I, I would be very surprised if our our numbers are materially different than the decents. Okay. Understood. And then the your estimate of one percent of the deferrals will have some form of delinquency going forward. Is that is that a reflection of what you're seeing uh, today? Let, you, let me give you a number. What we uh, we have some visibility on what we see on our six month deferrals on the arrears, and I think on the people of the people who took six-month deferrals, not the people just did three months and came off, but the people took the full six months. I think of those six-month deferrals, there, there was three and a half percent that were missed their payment by one day. So that's a very, very hardcore type of default. That translates into, and Rob, correct me if I'm wrong here, I think it was 11 or 12 basis points in overall deferral for the portfolio. So I, I'm, I'm doing this, I'm doing this uh, just out of memory. Uh, let's put it this way, deferrals just not on our, our radar at this stage. Um, or uh, rather, arrears from deferrals are not on the radar. Uh, I'd have to say probably, if, if you want to be a little bit more getting into it, it's probably, if you are going to see issues, you, might not, you may not see it for a month or two. Just might be enough cash to close that they can make a couple of payments. And I would think going uh, forward, uh, uh, I think going forward, you may see an increase. It's just not something we're worried about. And I think I, I will remind you that our model is such that we don't really have significant credit risk on our balance sheet. So either that's borne by the insurance companies or by our ultimate investors. So it's not an issue. Uh, I think uh, I think you know I think uh, the one thing I'd add and it I read a report two weeks ago and it dealt with the employment numbers for September and as you may recall there was a big increase in employment in September uh, exceeding expectations and one of the analysts and I forget which bank it was but one of the analysts one of the economists in the bank pointed out that uh, 99.5% of all people um, who were making $16 or more who were employed in February were still employed in were employed in September. So I think uh, among homeowners, most homeowners, 
job losses have been among those employees in minimum wage, restaurants, arts, uh, seasonal employment. Uh, homeowners who tend to be uh, more steady, more permanent jobs further along in their careers uh, have not experienced the same job losses. So I think we're not going to see the mortgage cliff. That may have been anticipated uh, back in the beginning of the pandemic. Great, appreciate the color. Thank you. The next question is from James Glowen with National Bank Financial. Please go ahead. Yeah, thanks. Good morning. Um, just want to follow up on the uh, on the deferral question. I was just curious. Uh, I'm I'm not sure if, if you mentioned this. The the uh, mortgages that are still deferred, very small, but are they are they deferred um, because they've been given you know a second or third extension? Uh, or are they just no. uh, still haven't lapsed on their six months? Just haven't lapsed on their six months. I mean, uh, if uh, you know, technically, I think you could get a deferral as late as September. So I'd say most deferrals, people would have gone their three-month deferral in that period of about March 15th to April 15th. And so that would have extended in uh, June to July. So they would be coming, uh, most of them are coming due in September through uh, uh, September through uh, October. But you could, have, you could have come in and gotten a three-month deferral, let's say May 1st or May 15th, and then uh, August 15th, you could have asked for another three-month deferral. So these are people on uh, original deferrals. We are not offering any further deferrals at this time. So if uh, we, uh, our program for drill, not unlike uh, most people in the industry, you basically gave an attestation uh, that you had some income-related issue. Uh, we, because of the huge numbers, we just weren't able to do the type of in-depth verification we normally would uh, on those circumstances. Uh, now, People come and they ask for another deferral. Uh, they ask another deferral. They have to provide fairly substantial documentation. And if there's not a if there's uh, not a path back to immediate employment, we're going to be taking the uh, appropriate uh, the appropriate steps. Okay, that sounds great. Um, I wanted to uh, to dig into the Excalibur program if I could, uh, and hopefully you can help us out with a little bit more disclosure around uh, how that program has uh, has been evolving uh, recently. Are you seeing similar growth in originations in that business uh, as the broader single family business? Uh, the growth. Um, I'm trying. I, I'm. Uh, I think the grow, uh, Excalibur has been strong. I actually, I, I don't know off the top of my head how growth in Excalibur was in Q3 compared to Q3 last year. Rob, do you recall? What the growth? Yeah, growth was Q3 Excalibur higher than Q3 Excalibur in 2019. I think it was pretty flat. I think you know, I think we sort of slowed down a bit on sort of our criteria for underwriting, but uh, I think going forward, we're more comfortable with. Uh, our program, and uh, we hope to, to grow the program over the next uh, year. I think, uh, I think I wrote in the MDNA this time that we had a small pilot project out of a Vancouver office, which produced a 
little bit of origination, but you know that's the, the next chapter for that program is to get out west and uh, and uh, get uh, yeah. product from there. Uh, actually, that that does remind me. I think in uh, in April and May uh, we uh, tightened our criteria with respect to, uh, with respect to Excalibur, and I I think that will reflect the closing in Q3 to some extent. I think we're a lot more comfortable with the market again now, and we continue to see growth in that in that area for 2021. Okay, great. And uh, moving to the uh, the placement fee margin, um, you know, obviously very solid in uh, in Q3 and you know up about 20 basis points year over year. Are you able to sort of disaggregate? The drivers of that of that increase is it uh, is it is it just the the higher fee on the commercial mortgages that's driving the bulk of that? Uh, is it uh, something that, something in the single family space? Maybe the Excalibur program can you sort of just break that uh, break that expansion down for us so we can understand how sustainable it is going forward? Yeah, Jamie, I'll talk to that a little bit. Um, you know, it's probably all three of them, but you know, the Excalibur part is very small, right? So it didn't have much impact. You know, the uh, multi-unit stuff uh, had very wide spreads. And the extent that we sold that to institutions, there was a, you know, a lot of extra spread in there that we got upfront in cash. But, you know, residential too, there was wide spreads in that, uh, that segment as well. So we did do well by uh, placing mortgages with various institutions. You know, as I said in, I guess, previous uh, disclosures, some of the stuff we sell on commitment, that's a fixed price, doesn't get affected by widespreads, but some that we sell to institutions on funded basis, that does uh, get us uh, more placement fee. Um, so I guess that's, that's the extent of all three things, but I would say mostly uh, the bigger prime mortgages in the residential space and uh, the prime insured mortgages in the commercial segment. Okay, that's, uh, that's great. Thanks very much. Once again, if you would like to ask a question, please press star 1 on your telephone keypad now. Again, that's star 1. We'll pause for just a moment. Okay, and at this time, there are no further questions. Mrs. Mr. Smith, any closing comments, sir? Uh, thank you very much, Operator. Uh, we look forward to reporting Q4 results in late February 21. Uh, in the meantime, uh, thanks for taking part in our call, and uh, have a good day. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for participating in today's conference call. You may now disconnect. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time.